Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about transitioning from writing movies to television as well as adapting features to TV series with a very special guest. Sinke Lee, an uh, indie filmmaker and writer on Netflix's She's Gotta Have It. Welcome. Welcome. Hi guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. <laughs> So first up, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you end up in the industry in New York and, and now L.A.? Well, let's see. I grew up in Brooklyn, still live there, from there. I guess I started making films in high school in this really cool public school called Art and Design. I'd been to private school up until, I guess, ninth grade, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, so my my private school at the time didn't have any filmmaking and i really was wanted to make some super eight short films and whatnot so i went to this really cool school called art and design and i uh, got to hang out with other you know young filmmakers he's a great teachers we got to watch short films and teachers turned me on to like you know black and white stuff like tarkovsky and and short films and it was really really an awesome time to be a kid working at a sort of speak or artist other kids you're 17 other kids from you know the bronx and bunch of rich kids and kids coming from all over the place but you know they were all making uh crazy films just having this miss marshall these city kids background so that was a lot of fun and that you know but there i had friends who were in that school were making features super eight movie features which is kind of crazy i was just making sort of you know short films and music videos to 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 stuff and uh taught us how to edit and stuff like that one of the things my friend we ended up co-writing this comic book for Dark Horse, Sean Fagan. One of the things he worked at a video store, one of the things he would do, he would get all the videos. They had an editing machine in the basement, and he would just make these music videos, just using, he'll just like grab all these cowboy movies and just put a song over it. <laughs> but he died a couple of years ago, and I've carried that on just to keep my editing chops together. They've probably taken a lot of them down because I don't have permission to use people's <laughs> songs on YouTube. <laughs> As I got out of high school, I decided to shoot this indie feature called Winning on Your President. It took me about seven years to shoot black and white film about these people living in a, in a world where love and color don't exist. And so everyone's pretty depressed and, and doing themselves in. And they come across these pills that take them out of that reality and put them in a place that's, that has, you know, color in it. So that sat in a closet for years up until like three or four years ago, someone called me up. It's like, hey, I saw this film in a film festival. I'm like, you're impossible. It's still in my closet. It's never been anywhere. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, we saw it at some in Arizona. I'm like, dude, stop bullshit. You've never seen this film. I don't know. It's literally never been transferred to DVD or anything like that. I mean, I have the 60 millimeter negatives. Anyway, they, I was like, okay, shine. They put it out on DVD and I, you know, did a director's commentary on that but the first film job i ever had was i think it was called film news film newsreel something like that i was cleaning film i had to clean film for the 60 millimeter library they would just lent out their their distributor to to schools and stuff like that did you have any particular movies or tv shows that inspired you when you grew up uh, well, g going back to my high school stuff, uh, I wish I could remember my teacher's name. He showed us some really cool, I didn't know you could make short films at that point. So that was, I was inspired by my DP also, when, when I ended up doing the first movie, that 65 minute, made it color black and white film called Winning Present. He turned me on to Tarkovsky. So that really, really put me like, I was living that, you know, I was like living in black and white. In, in high school, too, I was doing some black and white films, which was great. So I was really inspired by uh, 
a lot of black and white old stuff. There's some Roland Polanski stuff and the Tarkovsky and uh, a lot of a lot of silent films too. There was some of that, you know. I think we even watched Birth of a Nation. Uh, there was uh, <laughs> oh, wow. some non-PC films now, <laughs> even back yeah. then, and you know, Triumph of Will. We watching stuff like that, and you know, and we we'd bring in our own films and and show them in class too. It was a pretty pretty crazy 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 school because half the school was graffiti artists from the eighties. So it's legendary, legendary graffiti, you know, Lee and Zephyr and all these, you know, had a lot of fashion art students there too. So we'd shoot their fashion shows. So we'd mixing up with all the photographers and we got to shoot stuff on film, shoot stuff on, on, on video. And we had 35 millimeter still cameras and we had illustration. And so we were making our own storyboards too. There'd be someone in class who was really good illustrators. He'd do our storyboards and act. And it was just, a free-for-all. Um, <laughs> I remember Spike shot this film in NYU. He almost got kicked out of it. It was called The Answer. It was a short film. It was about they wanted to make a remake of Speaking of Birth of, Birth of a Nation, but they wanted the only reason they can remake it is they had a black writer. Mm. So the story was, they were like, oh, you're, you're, you're saying something bad about this great American film. So anyway, Spike had this really cool Klan suit for made for the film. Part of the thing the teacher said, you couldn't, it had to be a film, but it had to use dialogue that wasn't synced so we had the guy in a hood so he couldn't see his mouth so all the dialogue was you know was was done whatever anyway i took this clan suit to my school art design <laughs> one day and i had my friend damien lichtenstein who's, a, who's also a filmmaker we went to this class i had a substitute teacher we were waiting in the hallway and damien you know i'm as black and damien's is i'm still the same height i am now five foot nothing i just bust burst into this class and damien's in this full-blown KKK, you know, for chasing me around the classroom, oh you know, and everyone's just sitting there just like deadpan, like, what the <laughs> F is going on? You know, and I ran down the hallway and lost him somehow, and, and he's, some guys were like, what, what's going on, man? You, you probably you in trouble? Some older senior guys. I was like, no, and I finally saw a demon. He's like, man, where the hell did you go? I almost got killed. They didn't understand that we were just playing. Anyway, I tend to go off on these tangents. It's basically the prequel to Black Klansman. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I was inspired by comic books a lot too. There was I was I was just telling you guys earlier off mic that I'm the youngest of, you know, a bunch of siblings and my older siblings, you know, Spike had the superhero stuff like Marvel comic books and brother Chris had the art crumb and the European comic books like Heavy Metal, which and those had a lot of science fiction, which I, I really liked that. That were really kind of cool. My sister had the Archie comic books and Richie Rich and the Mad Magazines and stuff like that. And I really wanted to be an illustrator originally. So I was, I, you know, I just, you know, the kids like to draw and stuff like that. And somehow I just made my way into making these arty little little films, I guess, through, through high school, making art, art films. A lot of people, you know, real adult films that got 17-year-old kids in it, but they're acting like they're, you know, playing adult roles, which is kind of crazy. My friend Sean did have an older brother, and his older friend, they got him to be in another films like that. Uh, so what did you kind of learn about filmmaking from being on sets and getting your hands dirty with all that stuff? Being on set is interesting because I was a videographer on Spike's films way back before, I didn't even think that term was even used, back in, I guess, 19... 88 was Mobile to Blues, 1988. That might have been the first film. So I was I was able to get into 
be on behind the scenes in the you know makeup room and early on you know the castings I would shoot the open calls I would shoot a lot of those so I got to see a maid from the beginning to literally you know shooting some stuff with editor Barry Brown behind you know on on the 16 millimeter flatbed kind of stuff and shot all of the film scorings that my dad did too you know 80 piece orchestras so I was documenting and seeing you know, being on, on set, which, you know, led me to, in knowing which, what I know I couldn't have stripped down shooting a film. It would just be me and a cameraman and not even a sound person sometimes. Having, you know, limited resources, but, you know, I, I yeah, that was just amazing having that experience. Just, you know, being in Denzel Washington's face and Clive Owen in the corner talking about a scene. They know I'm there. I'm like the fly in the wall, which is just out of this effing world, you know, to see stuff like that, you know, and get yelled at. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you'd have Philip C. Hoffman, like uh, 25th Hour, you'd be shooting him and he'd be like, Sankey, I see your effing red light on on your video camera (laughs) out of my eye line. You know, which is right. You want to be in someone's eyeline, and he'd be like, "I don't know how actors do it." I mean, if I was going to shoot a Star Wars movie, or like you do, you do like a Lincoln. You know that that film that he did. I'd have like the camera in a big wooden box. The guy acting like that have like a whole crew instead of shorts and walkie talkies. You just make it all around. But I dress the whole crew up in all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Anyway, yes. What did I learn by shooting on stuff? I mean. It, it, it's hard to say, you know, it's, you learn, I mean, you learn a lot of things about shooting with multiple cameras. You see how Spike went from shooting with one camera to the shooting with like six cameras at once. You learn about coverage a lot, about singing live on set, the certain things you let you learn about everything from working with the sound department, wild, wild, you know, wild sounds, just all these certain things. I literally, when my film school was shooting videography for 15 years, if not more, on Mike's film. So that that was a big deal to me. Well, you've also acted in a few projects uh, yourself. What lessons have you taken from acting into your own writing? And how do you approach writing now with that experience? Yeah, it's it's I, I approach writing and acting in two different ways. Uh, if... If I write something and I'm directing it, I'm not a stickler for my actors to sticking to word by word. Sometimes it's children and you wanted them to make feel comfortable and they haven't acted before. You want it to be come out the way just as long as, you know, I let them get the, get the point across. I'm not a stickler for words. Um, as an actor, I found that it's been easier for me when the director lets me do that. Like, uh, Jim, Jim Jarmusch. Or Tom De, Tom DeSillo. I, I was in something that he directed, and he was like, yeah, just if you don't want to stick to script and just, you know, off the cuff do stuff. And Gina Gershon was like, what the F are you doing? I don't know when to come in. I, I, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I, I threw her off, you know, because she's waiting. She knows her lines, and I obviously don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just, you know, riffing. And so, you know. Circling back to the question about um, if if I'm on set and, and someone else is directing, I don't have any problem with with actors going off script. Sometimes the you know, director likes that. I've been in a writer's room working with other other writers who've who've done shows more writing, and they flip the f out. <laughs> Even when I was working with that director on another project, it was a TV, 
And the writer was on set, and he was livid that I was not sticking to his stuff. But the director, who I know, he was like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We got to keep moving. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I don't find it that precious if, I don't want to say work for hire, but it's, you know, I've got stuff in my closet that I won't let people touch. I wouldn't want to see anybody else do it. You know, though there's I know there's people out there who could uh, do a good job with it. Do you feel that that's a difference between TV and features where some people are more precious about the words written on the, in the script? No, I guess it depends on the director, writer, usually. But if it's more of a television thing, I find that it's more precious to the writers because sometimes the writers are the producers or they might be the showrunner they want and they want the actors to, to, to stick with I, I personally, working in television, yes, I was precious of what my words were and having the actors do that and being rewritten. They're like, yeah, it happens all the time. Sometimes they don't tell you. Sometimes you will. Sometimes you find out a year later. Like, oh, he rewrote that? I was like, yeah. I'm like, dude, you should have told me. You <laughs> I was wondering if you wrote that scene or what happened. And it's like, ah, sorry, I don't want to tell you. They asked me to do it. That's TV, yeah. Yeah, that's TV. <laughs> So you're a writer, director, and you're often producing and shooting your own features on a shoestring budget. You know, is it important to you just get out there and make stuff? Do you find that freeing or is it limiting to, you know, you said not sometimes not even without a sound guy, you're just kind of have a skeleton crew. I love the small crew. I mean, even if there's a big crew, I like to have just less people in the crew in a room at all, just the actors. And I just love shooting guerrilla stuff, just going out and just, shooting especially in new york it's it's i just love to have a tiny crew for some reason it just seems more this is an intimacy about it you know I, i was shooting this one feature that i wrote and i just went i, I had a script supervisor there but i was like you know screw the effing slate let's just roll just keep rolling and stuff like that. this is on film 260 millimeters so it wasn't wasn't that cheap back then either but i yeah i tend to like it small Do you think uh, smaller crews allow for more creative freedom? For me, yeah. Because, I mean, sometimes you just got to go ahead and shoot and not wait for the money to come in. Go ahead and shoot, even if it's a teaser. But sometimes it's it's nice to involve a lot of people. I like collaborating with people like crazy. I mean, actors, the costume design, and musicians and composers and stuff like that. I, I, I love that. I actually wrote a children's book recently, a picture book take on a nativity story like the like the origin of, of the first christmas tree and what saint nick was before that and where the three kings were before they became saints or the three kings and whatnot then that was a children's picture book and then i decided to you know write a, a adapt it into a screenplay and i was always doing that i was listening to this band i've listened to for years called prefab sprout And I was like, wow, that, that fits in the scene, that song. Maybe I can work it into the dialogue. So I took 20 songs from this band, Prefab Sprout, who, who all the songs are written by this guy, Patty McAlone, this UK guy. And I got in touch with him, and he was like, great. And then he got inspired and started collaborating, writing all these new songs. <laughs> like, I got the songs you got already. But he's like, no, no, I wrote 35 more. Wow. So that was kind of a cool collaboration kind of thing, which was really, really awesome. You know, and then for the children's book, I was collaborating with an illustration like that. So it's tons of people I love to work with, you know. So speaking of collaboration, you co-wrote a feature with some of your siblings, with Spike and your sister. Is it, so what was that like collaborating with, you know, your family on, on storytelling and scripts? 
That was great. My sister Joie wrote a script. It was called Hot Peas and Butter. And it was about her growing up in a family with four boys, having four siblings, boys, and, and, and having a mother who died. That was her. She wrote the first draft. It was her script, her story. And then we did another draft, and I wrote some with her in that. And then we took it to our brother to get his opinion on it, you know, thinking we were going to do it with our own company. And he was like, well, actually, this would be great for, to do as a feature film. I'd love to direct it. You guys come aboard, you know, with your company, and we'll, and we'll do it at, at a studio. And that was pretty cool because we were, it was a hands-on thing. My sister Joie and I, we went out and found all the kids in the film. So we were auditioning, you know, the lead kid and the kids. You know, we knew what our families, you knew what we were looking for. It was based on our family. We couldn't say it at the time, but we knew we were looking for it. Um, so it was a while ago, but, we, you know, we're trying to use that, get that going as a series now, too. It's not easy working with, with with this family. You know, you got the dynamics, and and and, and, and there's there's a pecking order sometimes. You know, sometimes that comes out on on the set. You're a young sibling, and it's yeah, you're talking to someone not as the producer on the show director. You're talking to him as a sibling, and it, and it gets a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets. I'm sure it happens. I'm sure, it happens to people who who you know who work um, family. Uh, and, you know, we usually get through it. But there's been points where, you know, it gets pretty nasty. What was it like working with Jim Jarmusch? And <gasps> can you talk about how that came about? Yeah. Spike, Jim Jarmusch, John Waters, and a couple other film directors, I guess in 1988 or 87, were going to Japan to show their films all over on a tour. And Spike knew that I was totally into, you know, in the 80s, everyone, you know, into Japanese anime back then. I was into Japanese, you know, Film, all that kind of stuff, just the whole culture. I was totally obsessed with it. And Spike was like, dude, I'm going over there. He knew that. He's like, you want to come? I was like, oh, dude, please. So that's where I met Jim Jarmusch. Just hanging out with him over there in Japan. It's funny. I remember <laughs> just, I was such a nerd too. I was quoting all these, it's embarrassing. I'm even too embarrassed to say I was quoting all these Star Wars, man. Come on. To Jim Jarmusch, you know, the art god. Jim has never seen Star Wars before. <laughs> After the film tour was over, I actually stayed in Japan and got a job working on a, on a Japanese film called Robinson Garden, and I didn't speak a word of Japanese, but I was sort of like the you know the mascot. I I would come in the office and just crash and sleep there. But you know it, it was kind of cool being on a Japanese film set. A couple of years ago, I worked on a Japanese film, and they shot forty days straight, no days off. Wow! And it was insane. This guy shoots about six or seven features a year. He's insane. There are people dropping out. Anyway, so when I got back to the States, Jim contacted me. He's like, I wrote this part for you in a film. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, yeah. I think it was called Tuesday Night in Memphis. I think it was called. I'm like, sure. And I th and I think I'm, and then I flew down to Memphis. And he's like, yeah, Screaming Jay, you know, is going to be it. I'm like, oh, wow. He's the guy who sang that song in, in your other film, I suppose, following you. In New York, I found that Joe Strummer was going to be in it. We all just lost our shit from the clash. <laughs> and that was pretty amazing. Just, you know, Ricky Vila is this, this comedian from, you know, New York City. He was in the film, too. And it was just a blast just being in the, in the summer. I think I turned 21 in that film, being uh, in, in Memphis, being around all this, you know, culture, blues and stuff like that. And Jim made it, he was very laid back. Very laid back. My sister came to visit me 
And Jim had some leftover film in that film. That's when he started shooting, I think, these shorts called Coffee and Cigarettes. So my sister came down and we played it, the twins that we did it with Steve Buscemi. And then he did another one in New York with Jack and Meg White from the White Stripes that I was in also, another Coffee and Cigarettes with him. But yeah, Jim is very laid back and relaxed. Some other directors I've, I've been in stuff with, I just not so laid back. <laughs> <laughs> I like the laid back and working on stuff where people are uh, happy. Because I've been yelled at on set. And it's very, very embarrassing. And it's just really kind of messed up. It messes, your, messes up your flow. I'm imagining film. Jim getting quoted Yoda lines. <laughs> <laughs> Never do. saw Star Wars. I don't even think he's even seen Star Wars to this day. God bless him. Do or do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned anime and growing up reading comics, but you've also written and published some uh, some comics, graphic novels yourself uh, for Dark Horse. Is that something you'd always wanted to do, or how did that kind of come about? Absolutely something I always wanted to do. Even pitching to Dark Horse comics with my friend Sean Fagan from high school, we sketched out the whole thing, drew the whole comic first, all the six issues, and you know, with lettering and everything, and did it ourselves. It was so much fun, because we were doing that stuff, even storyboarding and making our own comic books in school. Yeah, growing up, all my older siblings had comic books, like I said, Mad Magazine. Heavy Metal was a really, 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 this European illustration comic book uh, uh, magazine. I was influenced by that so, 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 so much, just the science fiction in it and just the fantasy stuff in it. And I was influenced by, you know, science fiction films in the 80s, like RoboCop and stuff like that and, and, and Blade Runner. And Sean and I were at a party one day and we were just like, uh, what if there was a, you know, a, a narcotic, a, a opioid that makes you float? And so we bust out this cassette player. We had a tape. And we went to the room at the back of this party and we just started just riffing on on these characters and in the world that, you know, if, what if it, if it was legal and we built this whole society in the city based, based on that. All right, moving on to the TV of it all. Can you walk us through how you ended up working on the TV version of She's Gotta Have It? Spike uh, asked me. He reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to, you know, write an episode of the show? So he gave me the Bible that he had and I think after that we had a meeting he hired some other writers and we had a, re- a meeting which would turn out to be the you know uh, the writers room we all you know we all bashed out what we wanted in the show what Spike wanted Spike the show runs the, uh, the series directs every episode he's he's the source of, 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 of his film I've never written on television before or collaborated with so many people, writers in the room. It was, I was, it was very cool to be in a room with apparently all the writers. They'd never been in an all-black room before, so they were totally psyched. And a lot of women writers, too. I found openly that I could talk to other people who've been writers on other shows, and I can ask them stuff. And they asked me, well, saying, you know, do you have room in your episode for this? Because it works better in your episode. And maybe, you know, we can switch it somewhere else. So it was very fluid in that way, which... Apparently, sometimes it doesn't work that way. So I guess I've been spoiled in that respect, you know. And, you know, it was it was cool to be in a room. Hey, go in that room and write that scene. And go in the room and come back and we'll just do this. And go home and we'll talk to you in a week. You know, and you're outside the room and you're talking to writers, you know. And they're outside the room too. And you're asking, you know, them about stuff. And that was, was kind of cool. 
That's why I thought it'd be. It, it, there were some bumpy, bumpy parts. You know, it wasn't all smooth sailing. But you know, when we came back for the second season, we had newbies in the room. There'd be some hurdles that we already we, we did before. But you know, you're gonna run into the same stuff sometimes because not because there's new people in the room, but there's just stuff that rears his head again. That you remember, like, oh yeah, right. How did I step in that pile of that thing again? <laughs> I'm just gonna. It's better just to hear out what's going on. And <laughs> I found something that was very interesting. Sometimes you don't want to put something out there, even as a joke, just to spitballing because it might end up on something. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, man. I was just kidding. I didn't think it was a really good idea. And sometimes it ends up <laughs> produced. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes you'd be getting kicked under the table by another writer. You know, it's just like, what are you doing? Why did you say that? I'm like, I don't know. I was kidding. And didn't you guys know I was kidding? So, can you talk to us about your writer's room process? How do you guys break story? Are you putting stuff out on index cards, writing things up on the whiteboard? Like, what does it look like when you sit down and want to create stories? Yeah, we started out on a whiteboard. You know, we break it down with episode, episode, and then we start with the character. And then we bleed from that character and her connections, who's who's closest to her. There are three boyfriends, and she's got to have it. She's dating three different dudes. Uh, then we would go from there, and then we'd sort of, you know, branches out, sort of like a family tree, so, so to speak. We do character arc, and we do a story arc with the 10 episodes. Uh, this season, we <laughs> we sort of it was interesting. We sort of put our 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 names in the hat, so to speak, of what episodes. Okay, I'd like to tackle this episode where there's. I didn't do this episode. I don't even know if it's it's there or not. For instance, just there's a block party. Who wants to do to do this episode? A block party. What happens in that? So I guess that I've never been in another writer's room besides that one. So I imagine that's how they go down because we had people working in the, who'd been in a room like that. So yeah, we break it down with uh, the whiteboard and then that gets filled up and then we got to bring in another whiteboard <laughs> and then we got to take pictures of those whiteboards. And luckily we had someone was stenographer basically mm -hmm. doing all our stuff. So we were able to look at our notes that we had in there. You know, sometimes we get bumped off a show. You know, sometimes you 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 find a vo you might find a character on a show that you know that you really 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 like, but that's not going to happen if the main character is in every show. So you try and make it all sound the same, basically. You know, you try and find this character and make it sound like the same person wrote it. As as far as far as the characters go, some people will find that character on a show better than you. And sometimes you might find it better than a person, but I guess the thing is to make it all look like it's smooth were you guys figuring out those character arcs from a season-long perspective or was it primarily based on every episode by episode i think we tried to make them standalone but it was we were definitely looking at the seasonal arc we were looking at the middle of the season even though it's netflix and it's dumped all at once we were still looking at it that 10-hour movie sort of maybe a five-hour movie i think they're i think they're 30 to 40 minutes those episodes so yeah we were arcing out seasonal seeing where the characters go in the season. So you worked on the original film when it was being shot, right? Did that give you some sort of insight into, you know, this world and these characters having been there for the original? No, I really didn't draw on, on what I did when I was 17 or 16 or 15 <laughs> working on work, working on that film. I didn't, yeah. 
it was it was definitely guerrilla Indian stuff. Um, I didn't, I, you know, that was that was that was that was Spike's thing. I didn't really draw on that on that because it was really we were. I don't want to say trying to update it, but there was some stuff. She, I don't want to say she's more woke now than she would have been, yeah. and she was very ahead of her time when her show came out too, having three boyfriends, which is okay now and not and not such a big deal. But then there was for a character. People reacted to her that character differently in the film and when the film came out, and, you know, in the, in the story in the film. So it's a little different now. So yeah, I mean, everyone looks back and sees a different different view. Well, to that point, what were some of the unique challenges in adapting this classic movie into an ongoing TV series, especially when you're adapting it to the current generation and era? I'm sure you know you want to stick to to the core of what makes made her her and made her interesting you you don't want to make her dated anyway you want to bring her into this world so that's interesting because of the stuff you had like you could live in new york city in brooklyn as an artist and have a big loft back then and and in brooklyn so it's challenging to make her artist <laughs> and this time living in Brooklyn. You're just going to have a hard time making that real. <laughs> and you have a hard time making that reality and paying the and rent. <laughs> paying the rent, you know, making keeping the lights on. So there's there's that challenge. You can get away with a lot of stuff back then. People are deeper into what is reality. So there there's that. So people are going to call you on your on your BS. So when you're writing the show, are you keeping a sort of a message or a theme in mind when you're doing that, particularly with the approach to kind of feminism and empowering women and, you know, even representation of, you know, gender and sexual identity? I think it's, you know, they say Noah's a sex positive, polyamorous, pansexual, right? So there's a lot of kind of issues and themes to, to dive into there. Is that something that's really uh, at the forefront of your minds when you're writing the show? Absolutely. That, that, that was so embedded in our writer's rooms especially thankfully to the women writers on the show, we would have people come into the room and speak with us quite often. And we'd pick their brains and they would tell us everything about gender, about race, about art, from, from you know artists to writers to same gender, people who are in relationships with kids and being black and growing up in everything. So we, we were immersed in it. Spike would buy us books. We would read. Uh, we'd have writers come in and we'd watch films. We were just so deep into it after our neck. So when we were actually writing, it was in our blood, so to speak. Yeah. You know, more, it was percolating there all the time on the forefront there. So that was, Spike is just so, 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 it's great. He's so into research. And he just, you know, totally goes in there and goes in it. So we were aware even more than we were before. So that was a big part of the show. The show needed that. Yeah. And I think it really shows that in who he hired and who was hired for the show and, and, and the stories we were addressing and themes in it. Absolutely. And when you're generating the stories in the room, from what angle do you approach those narratives? Is it mostly from characters? Is it from theme, uh, plot, or story? Yeah, I guess what we wanted to do, it always had to be about our lead character, Nola. I had to, and, and and at the same time, through her friends that she knows who are going through different things and things that are affecting socially the neighborhood, 
gentrification was a big, big theme in New York and Brooklyn and in an episode in, a, in the real neighborhood she lives in in Fort Greene. So that influenced a lot of the themes and things that were going on. You know, even uh, the hurricane in, in Puerto Rico, that influenced one of our main characters who's Puerto Rican, who's uh, Mars, uh, that influenced him because he's Puerto Rican living in Brooklyn and that's going, that, that affected his his family life and, and the theme. So that there's a lot of stuff that was going on and still going on that influenced our, our themes and our, and our characters. So, yeah. So a lot of stuff generating from character and then also just taking that inspiration from the outside world and how that would be real to those characters. And us living in, in New York and on the way to work from some people lived in Harlem and they had to get in the A train and take a 45 minute travel to the office and they're telling a story about some lady on a train arguing about the American Civil War or what happened with, you know, certain stuff. So it's some stuff that was on our shoe ended up on the table and our notes and the <laughs> script that we brought into the room. It wasn't a sanitary room, so to speak, you couldn't bring any stuff in. There was stuff that, you know, our hands were sweaty and we were sweating when we came into the office during the summer. It was a hot Brooklyn. So that was, you know, our 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 sweat and our tears are, our blood are in it. So a lot of that stuff and Spike loves that. You know, we, he likes us to bring personal yeah. stuff and stuff. We bounce off of each other in the room. So absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and music plays an important role in the show as well. Can you kind of speak to that and how that all works in? Working music into the show, we <laughs> we would read, you know, we we read our stuff to the room and have everybody read. It was really great to have all the writers in the room. And then we'd have somebody cast everybody. You read this character. Can you read this character and this character? I'll read this character. And we're all reading it. And sometimes we'll throw a song in there. And Spike will be like, yo, we just blew our, our music budget on that. So you guys got to calm down with the music. You know? <laughs> and sometimes we suggest a song. And sometimes it would be in there. And sometimes it wouldn't. Spike you know, also reached out to, had an open door policy. He had literally thousands of people submitting songs. He listened to every effing song, so there was that, and you know, and he had a relationship with Prince, so we were lucky enough to. He was lucky enough to get. We were to get stuff in there, so it played a big role. And that was Spike had the final call in that, but he definitely listened to. I wrote a class song into there, and into an episode. It didn't make it, but yeah, you can write stuff in there. Who knows if it's going to make it or not? So yeah, it plays a big role in all of Spike stuff. So now that you've worked in both TV and feature as a writer, what do you feel are the key differences? when you're breaking a story and coming up with a narrative between a feature film and a TV episode? Uh, well, from the television I've worked on, it's you got more cooks in the kitchen, as they say, you know, and that can be a blessing or or this guy, you got more cooks in the kitchen and you boil it down to the best stuff, I guess. So that that really helps. And, he, and, he, and if you have people in a room you can trust, that's really good. Um, as far as writing, you know, stuff on your own, it's, I guess more personal because you're going to draw on stuff that, that you're influenced by and stuff in your life and the emotions you're, you're going through and what you want to say. It's totally different. And if you're not under the gun, it could take, it's, it's not time sensitive as far as you have a deadline, but it's always nice to give yourself a deadline. Otherwise you're going to be, I find some writers, you don't have deadlines. They end up with a 900 page script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, over the last couple of years, I do like getting feedback on my script. And I want to thank you, Nick, for that recent 
feedback I got on, on, a, on a script I'm working on uh, really opened up some really good questions, uh, to, you know, character and and because when you're writing in you know in a, in, a, in a room by yourself, you think it's great. You don't see stuff. You don't think you're you're not answering. You're not asking yourself questions that you know, you know, but it's not there in a, in a freaking script. So it's always nice to have somebody be a really good reader. And it's really I found that eye opening and really inspired that having someone who really knows structure and, and character growth and, and arcs and stuff like that. So you've been making films and working in the industry now since the 80s. How have you seen things change over the years, you know, moving towards digital or just general industry trends and things like that? Yeah, I I am torn in a way because I still work with Super 8 film. I, I got I dug up some uh, some cameras, but it's, it's still out there. I'm always pushing to shoot on film. There's a film I want to do, but I'm torn between shooting it on digital or or, or film. I, I think digital is is amazing, but I'm still, as I hold up my flip phone, I'm still an analog <laughs> guy. I don't I don't have a phone with the camera, but I've seen stuff shot amazingly on phones and stuff like that. So I say, you know, do it, do it. I mean, it really has opened up the door to no excuses whatsoever to to making something you know it's just it's another tool but i just wish people would would not give up on super eight because <laughs> it's really an amazing look that you can't recreate at this point at least do you think things are better for indie filmmakers these days or easier to get your work out there or how's that kind of changed i imagine it's probably easier to get a film done but getting it out there you're probably there's so much stuff out there getting it your eyeballs on it is probably the biggest thing. Um, I, I've, I've been work, working on a, a film for a couple of years, trying to get trying to get it done. Basically, been you know going on location scouts and basically made a, my lookbook turned into a website about my film. So I have like the my actors and the costume design and and location scouts, and I even started making these miniature dolls, dolls of miniature, these GI Joe sized dolls. Of my actors' heads, three D printed with the costumes they're going to wear and the scenes, which is really just for myself. A friend of mine was like, "You're never going to make that freaking movie." But these dolls you have are so mad, so he wants to put them in a show. He's like, "You're never going to make that movie." These dolls you made of your actors and the costumes and and the scene. He's like, "Just just do a show." And you know, for him to get it out there is okay. He's got the gallery and whatnot, but at the same time, he's like, "I don't have any presence, anything on." social media, like I showed you my flip phone, and he's like, you know, sometimes people on Asians, how many hits do you have on your Instagram or your thing like that? So I think it's hard for some people, you know, I think it's kind of interesting and, uh, and weird that people are like, you know, what have, what have you got? How many likes do you have or, or whatever? So I, I find it, I'm sort of a strange in a strange land when it comes to that kind of stuff. Put it this way, when I put my website for my film, which I'm trying to make, on, on, on his website and people are basically pulling photos of my actors off of and the photos I took and I got really pissed you know it's like this is my work you guys are taking the photos I, I have created every photo I think so I just put it up for a password you can only see if you have a password so yeah for some ways I'm not ready so anyway it's not ready to be out there yet but once I'm ready to fly that flag of this of my film of mine I will have an Instagram page and whatnot and I'll be able to step into that 
world that I'm so behind in. So when you're busy across all these different projects, how do you find the time to write? What's your kind of discipline? And do you find that it's easy to be distracted, especially by everything that's going on these days? Yeah. Um, finding the time to write and being dist- I know I'm so easily distracted. That's the main reason I have a flip phone and do not have a smartphone with the smart gene. Uh, I like to ride the trains getting to where I need to go. And New York, I'm going to be away from my computer that's at home, my laptop for the most 90 minutes or whatever I need to be going out, going to movies or whatever. So in the meantime, I like to have a notebook. That being said, I had a goal to write two scripts over the summer and I did not get there. It was maddening because what's going on with the politics and what's, you know, I'm just fascinated. I'm going to become like a news junkie. I loved it when, you know, we had Obama, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, no big deal. I need to just watch the news as soon as I wake up or go through all my websites, political websites before I go to bed at all. It's just like he, everything's in control. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about it too much. You know, now I'm just, I mean, I try, I'll have like, you know, screen up there in the corner of my thing and just so distracting. So I really, really need to unplug the, um, one of the last burst of really, really good screenwriting I had last year. My friend's parents moved out of their loft in Manhattan. They were like, yeah, we got to leave this place. It's been here for 30 years. Like, you know, it's got no internet right now. The gas is off. There's no refrigerators not here. And I was like, wait a minute. Can I spend the weekend here? <laughs> Why well, you guys, they're like, why would you want to do it? I'm like, I really would like to, to sit here in a place that has no internet and there's no thing to the refrigerator is gone. The gas is off. So I have nothing to do but write. And in two days, I'd like knocked out 40 pages on a script. And it was just so, you know, being like on an island. You know, I can yeah. go downstairs to the coffee shop in the morning and, and get a coffee. So that was amazing. So now, you know, getting myself to do that is a struggle. So uh, when you're writing for yourself, when you're writing for television, you you're, you got you got those deadlines you got to meet. Mm-hmm. So you will unplug and do that. You know, you will knock out those hours to get those pages done. But before I got all political, not all political news junkie, I would literally give my I literally give myself like you know, okay, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty five, thirty, thirty five, forty, forty five, fifty six. I'll get the sixty pages if I do five. You know, if I do five pages a day, I'll just beat myself dead. <laughs> You know, if if it's four in the morning, I got those five pages out, you know, then I'll wake up and I'll try to do five pages again. I'll only get three done. All right. So now I'm going to eight pages the next day. So now I'm just catching up and do it. That's how I usually write. I give myself a, a, a certain number of pages to do. And that usually gets me through one way or another. I got Rob Peter to pay Paul later on, yeah. you know, if I miss those days. But that's the way I usually get stuff. I like to write. <laughs> well, on that note, what are you working on next? Uh, any upcoming projects or things in development? Yeah, I mean, this film that I that I'm talking about, uh, Javelin. It's taken me a while to get it together because each person in the film is a person who has albinism. So I've been stopping people on on the street with my car. Hey, hey, this is. So I have about fifty actors. Who all have albinism, uh, and I'm trying to, you know, I've been working on that for a couple of years. I'm working on a couple of, I call it horror nostalgia. I have a horror nostalgia script that takes place in 82. I guess it's horror nostalgia because I guess Stranger Things is, I guess, is sort of made all these 
mm-hmm. looking back on stuff, you know, that was kind of creepy back then. Um, so yeah, I'm happy about that. Right now I have a company in a European company. It's very interested in that. Yeah, I'd like to work in all genres. There's a musical I mentioned earlier in this interview that I'm working on. And, you know, I'm into live theater. I like musical. I like all kinds of stuff. I like comic books. So I just like to be busy. I keep myself busy on the subway with my notebook and my earplugs. Do you think you'd like to continue working in TV after your experience with She's Gotta Have It? Oh, that's where it's at, man. That's where it's at. (laughs) When I when I when I pitch a script, they're like, "Well, that's great. How would it work as a series?" <laughs> <laughs> so you know, then sometimes you, you go to your script and you're like, "Okay, how does this character, how does this world open up into a series?" And you know, it's it's interesting. You got to broaden your. You think if you think it's something you know that could work into a series? Yeah, I mean, even that comic book I did for Dark Horse uh, it was only six. It was amazing. Only six six issues, but that could be a uh, you know some. Working that into a series, you know, trying to trying to work that world into uh, stuff. So that's fun. I love that, you know, opening up stuff because that's because you got some stuff that would never work as a movie now, mm-hmm. you know, because you're never going to make, but they might work as a broadening the world. So I I love that, you know. TV is where it's at. Yeah. All right, before we go, we have a few final questions for you. Uh, number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Right now, I'm watching Maniac, Better Call Saul, um, Cuckoo for mm-hmm. uh, Always Family Guy, <laughs> uh, Black Mirror, of course, whenever it's around. Yeah, they're going to do a Choose Your Own Adventure episode uh, at the end of the year, apparently. What? Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, my, oh, my. Um, there's so much stuff out there, so I'm really picky, you know, because I'll get I'll get I'll get cut up on stuff. Let's see, the, uh, uh, Walking Dead, of course, uh, Game of Thrones, of course, uh, Westworld. There is also a show called Big Mouth. Yeah, I just started watching that after everyone was saying how great it was. Oh my god, that's yeah, I'm watching that. That's real pisser. Carbon copy, of course. Those are the ones off the top of my head. I'm. I'm watching right now. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Number two, any final advice for aspiring writers or filmmakers? What would you tell people out there? What can they tell me is more like it. If I can look back on on what I could tell myself growing up is I would keep a diary or, or something from a young, young, young age because you, your memory might go and, you, and if you might want to tell stories to other people or as a short you know, writing shorts or, or features of films, it's really, it's really great stuff to draw on where, where your mindset was at when you were 5, 10, 8, teenager, 20s, 30s. I have the worst memory, and I really w- wish I had, like, a boatload of journals stuff, because that stuff will come in handy, even just, just for yourself. I think it's really cool to write what your feelings are at the time and what you went through. I have the advice I would give. Life logging, essentially. Uh, lastly, do you have any resources for our listeners, any books, apps, websites, software, anything you can think of that could be useful? Yeah. One of the books I read every now and then, which I only picked up a couple of years ago, there's a, there's a book by Stephen King on writing. That's just really, really phenomenal. He really you know, puts a light, a fire under your butt to get the pages done, you know? And my advice is, to, even if it's not like <laughs> Jack Nicholson writing the same word over and over 
<laughs> on a, on a, on a typewriter, but just just get the, something done, even if it's not good. At least you know you wrote something, even if you know you wake up the next day and you're like, "What the f is that?" I think just getting it. I don't want to say getting a hand starter, but just using that tool, just so you don't get rusty. I think just always write something. All right, even if it's by hand on pencil, <laughs> old school. Yeah, all right, fantastic. Okay, so uh, before we go, just want to remind our listeners that our paper tease competition is still open for submissions. If you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback from us on air, win prizes, and be eligible for our paper team mentorship. So that brings us to the end of the episode. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, thanks for joining us. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 114, 114. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews will help us uh, get new listeners and build our community. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Do you have any sort of social media or anything we can uh, direct people to or just I, prefer to be a, a ghost? Not right now, I don't. Okay. <laughs> keep, keep your eyes peeled in the future. <laughs> all right. Thank you. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send those to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to be talking to Carolyn Levitch and Michelle Badillo, who are writers on One Day at a Time, the multi-cam Netflix reboot of the old Norman Lear show. So that will be awesome. It's going to be a laugh track included with the episode. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys then. See you then.